Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2020. My name is Amato, and with me is... Tori. And And Tori. Yeah, double Tori. Yeah, you get two of me today because uh, we're still missing a dom, and I don't know, everyone else is bored with us. It feels strange to just have you uh, to discuss this with today, but... We have done just you and me before when we uh-huh. did the Utana Text Adventure game. Yeah, that was a few bonus episodes. Yeah, it wasn't quite the same though because we were playing a game together. This time we're actually doing retro fanfic. We are. It's fanfic, it's retro. Um and basically we don't have Dom for a few weeks and I've been lax on arranging guests. So I have guests for the next couple weeks, but I didn't have one for this week. And so what do we do when it's just you and me and we can choose anything we want? Utena. We pick Utena. Yeah. I feel a little bit embarrassed because I feel like it's not... We've done more Utena content than we have probably any other franchise. I think we've Um, done more Harry Potter. Have we done more Harry Potter? We've done only two proper Utena episodes, I guess. Yeah. A lot more Harry Potter than that. But I just have the feeling that perhaps the, you know, Utena fandom might not be quite as large as, say, like the Harry Potter or, you know, Buffy or X-Files ones. Just a feeling I have. <laughs> you might know more than anyone, having been so heavily involved in the fandom. Yeah, it was never that big. It's kind of hard to tell, though, because you have, like, I feel like a lot of people who appreciate Utena without necessarily writing fan fiction about it or, you know... Uh, but then again, that might not be true. It might be that Udna has a relatively high rate of, in you know, involvement in the community from people who watch it and like it. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's one of those things that's it's very dense, and you have to watch it multiple times in order to, like, parse even some of the literal things that happen. So that does make the fandom smaller. But it makes the fandom more committed. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, given that this was kind of a last-minute decision... Uh, on my part, uh, my process for choosing a Utena fanfic was a little different than usual. It was kind of length-focused. I kind of needed something shortish. And there's, you know, a lot of shortish Utena fanfiction, but I decided to go for something that was of a genre we haven't really touched on yet, because we've only really talked about Utena stuff that's been set kind of in the series, maybe towards the end of the series sometimes, uh-huh. like those first couple of short fanfics we we read. Uh-huh. I guess maybe one of those... Uh, whatever. The point is there's this whole genre of like post-series Utena fanfic, right? Like you might expect. Right. And there is a sort of thing that often happens in those stories where authors often bring the cast back together post-series. Um for one reason or another, to kind of, like, address the dueling game or the things that happened in it or, you know, somehow get, like, tied back up in those sort of machinations, right? Uh Uh-huh. But the thing is, most of the really famous fanfics like that are really, really long. Like, really long. And in some cases, not finished. Yeah. You know, 
I've never read that much Utena fanfic, actually, because I don't, I didn't read much fanfic before this podcast. I, I have this thought on Utena fanfic, which is I would never attempt it because the series <laughs> is so intricate and I wouldn't want to let it down. Like, I almost have that reverence. Uh, I think this author does a great job. We've, we've read this author before. Yeah, but, um, the fanfic that I yeah. chose is called Ten Years After. It's one of those post-series of fanfics, but unlike some, it is a, you know, a length that I could assign in a week, no problem at all. It's like 13,000 words. And it was written in 1999 by Chris Davies, who we have talked about before. Yeah, what did we read of him, right? He, yeah, him. What did we read the of The Ray his? Trilogy. That's right, Yeah. So we read Sailor Moon from him, um, but we haven't read Utna from him yet. Right. And, um, yeah, it's interesting. There were a couple of, you know, kind of notable male early Utna fanfic authors who did some really good work. I'd say it's Chris Davies and Alan Harnum that I can think of. Um, that might be the only two that I can think of. But, yeah, yeah, well, let's talk about the fanfic. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. I... I did get in contact with Chris Davies um, by email. Oh. He's quite contactable compared to some people, and he was very gracious about our Raid Trilogy discussion. <laughs> and he had a couple of notes that I will call our attention to as they become relevant. Great. Um, and I just want to preface and say, like, since you bring it up, it does surprise me um, that a male author would be so into Utna and also really respectful of it. Because, you know, it's about lesbian relationships. And I really... <laughs> well, it's about a lot of it's things. It's about a lot of things. Oh, you're right. But I guess that's not... My, let me put it this way. That this author, for writing in 1999 and being, you know, and being a man uh, whose sexual orientation I don't know, but, like, had a very respectful take on the lesbian relationships of the series and the women in the series, so... Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's the least we can expect from men, but sometimes it doesn't come. So I will say that I, I like this author for that. Good. Yeah, I, I like this author in general, which is interesting because I think this is the second thing I've ever read of his, even though I you know saw the name a lot in the kind of 90s fan fiction scene. Hmm. Anyway, we've got a prologue. Let's jump into this fanfic a little bit. And the prologue is a frame story of a sort. It's a little bit odd as a frame story. I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's going on in this frame story? Well, there's... You mean like in the prologue? You know what? It's not actually a frame story. That's, that's why it's a little bit odd yeah. as a frame story. Yeah, just the prologue. What's happening in the prologue? I was going to say, like, it kind of comes back around to it, but it like, at the end, I guess we get that it's Anthe telling a story to someone, but yeah. it's it's a story of a, a princess, like, it's a story of the princess weeping over the graves of her parents, but it's being... Uh, I'm trying to remember what okay, comes well, out of it. It's like, it's like the there, there's, story. There, there's a girl but... who's being raised by some... Uh, like friends of her parents because her parents are dead. Yeah, and yeah. she has a fight with her stepmom and like runs off to the graves for parents to cry over it. Mm. And this woman approaches her and kind of starts talking to her and That's um, right. asking about her situation. That woman is Anthe, and you were saying a princess. Of course, it's described as a princess, but that's because yeah. it's 
it's being introduced in an Utena style motif fashion, right? It's not like the princess of a country. It is a princess in the fairy tale sense where like girls tend to be princesses right. just as a matter of course. Which is good for Udna. And to be honest, um, I kind of forgot that it even happened in the prologue that this girl, because it's kind of vague that this girl was there. I remember it from the epilogue, though, where Anthe completes the story to her and talks about Utna. But yeah, it's basically like she's she is crying over the graves of her parents, just like Utna was crying over the graves of her parents. So there's a parallel. But she lives with her stepmother, and she says like her stepmother hates her and... But no, it's just that she had a little fight with her stepmother. Yeah, exactly. Like, like you do when you're a kid. Um, yeah, the, the story Anthe begins to tell her is like, oh, I, that you remind me of a story. And when she starts to tell it, she just tells the Ushna opening. Like the um, sad princess, prince appears, this ring will guide you to me. Um, up to and including, but was that really such a good idea? At the end of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it jumps into the actual story. Shoujo Kakume Utena, ten years after. And then the tone changes dramatically, which is maybe why I, like, misplaced the prologue in this, but... It does. One of the author's two comments that he sent me relates to that kind of prologue-epilogue thing, but oh, I'll get yeah. to it in the epilogue. Okay, cool. So we get to our real story. And we're from Jury's perspective for most of the story. And she is a, like, you know, young hotshot in academia professor at a university. Mm-hmm. It drove me crazy. Yeah. Because they don't say what she's a professor uh, of. Yeah, apparently and she's a professor of being rational. <laughs> like, I mean, literature, maybe? I, I I don't think if she was a professor, per, excuse me, professor of literature, that there would be such an emphasis on her being a very rational, scientific thinker. I feel like she must be in the sciences. I guess that makes sense. And I mean, I totally buy Jury in her, like, you know, post-high school career. If she had a goal in mind, just, like, fixedly throwing herself into it and grinding it out really quickly, mm-hmm. that fits. But, like, what was it that she was invested enough in to do that wasn't, for? What is her subject? Right. Wasn't she already, like, a model or, like... I mean, she was, like, really beautiful, Una, but, like, I feel like she would have been, like, a model yeah. or an athlete. She was she was modeling on the yeah. side, yeah. Like, she would have been a model or an athlete. Not a, like, not that she couldn't be a professor, but I just didn't necessarily see her I going I don't yeah, not buy it. I just need to know what she's teaching. I hear ya. Yeah, I hear ya. Um, but what's nice is that the professor attitude she has, um, which is one of being totally rational around these magical concepts, really does work for her character. Mm. Absolutely. Speaking of magical concepts, she gets a letter, you know, anonymously, and like her TA, you know, hands it to her. Like, they needed a character for her to talk to in the scene. And it says, the duelists and others who ought to remember will meet in the Meiji Shrine's outer gardens this evening at 10 o'clock. Your presence is required. And it, wait, it's unsigned? I thought it was titled From the Victor of the Duels. Oh, yeah, it yeah. is. It's not signed. The letter, it, the envelope is labeled. Um, Keto no Shodisha, which is the Victor of the Duels. And there's also this, you know, thing introduced here that won't be resolved until the very end, which is on the other side of the card. It says, 
The secret of childhood is to never believe that you will one day die. The secret of adulthood is, and the trail's off. All right. <laughs> it is that, that's something from Utna, right? Like I, no, I, no, it feels well, like it should be. <laughs> it does. It fits. It fits the milieu, M- milieu, whatever. Me, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Dom would help us if they were here. And the concept here that, you know, you get used to in this sort of post-series Utna fanfic is it becomes clear she doesn't really remember anything relating to the duels. And that, you know, is a... Is it exactly an extrapolation from what we learn in the TV series? I think it is, because at the end, no one remembers Utna. No one remembers... All you learn for sure in the end of the TV series is that the rank and file of the school don't remember Utna. You don't get, like, a confirmation that, like, Wakaba doesn't. But it's consistent with, you know, things like when Mikage, you know, graduates, everyone forgets him, right? So so right. that it makes sense. Like, that's what you would expect to happen. That they totally forget anything about participating in the duels uh, isn't... I feel like that's a very common kind of fan extrapolation to make in this sort of story. Yeah, I wasn't surprised by that conceit at no. all. because It makes sense. I think in Utna, I mean, actually, I feel like that'd be my interpretation as well. Because yeah. it's leaving adolescence behind to come to adulthood. And especially when a story sets it up like this, where they are very specific. The author's very specific about the adult jobs and adult lives that they all have, even though they're only in their 20s, but still, you know, they have these adult lives. I think that makes sense that the adolescence is like a dream kind of thing. Right. And, you know, from a, like, in-universe other direction, it makes sense that Akio seems to have some kind of control over this sort of thing, and he wouldn't just let people walk around, you know, remembering that sort of thing if he could just tuck them out of the way not remembering it. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Good point. So and it makes so, sense, literally and symbolically. Yeah. And so Jury goes to Meiji Shrine at the appointed time at midnight and starts meeting the other people who have been gathered. Who are, you know, first... Who's the first one to show up? Was it... Uh, Miki. Miki, yeah. Who's on fairly good terms still with Jury, even though they don't, like, hang out, really, but... Yeah, they seem to be friendly, and they've yeah. been in touch, if not, like, you know, if not extremely regularly, at least they haven't been out of touch for that long. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's uh, Sayonji. Well, since we're talking about kind of their adult lives, yeah. we may as well just touch in on it. Miki's being a professional musician, like professional pianist, but kind of he's ended up becoming kind of a commercial pianist, which is... An interesting choice in that he's not totally comfortable with it either. <laughs> he's like, you know, he's still kind of like overwhelmed by the fact that he has a second, you know, music collection coming out. He's going to go on international tour. Right. And it's not really like a direction he would have planned for himself, but it's kind of where he ended up going. Yeah. And then Jerry gets to offer him some advice because he's kind of insecure about, uh, you know, being in front of people and, he never thought his piano playing was really that good. And she talks about how the time she first lectured and she didn't think anyone would listen and how she got her confidence. 
it's kind of a really, like, for a lot of this story, there is a lot of just character interactions between these people who are called together. And this is a good one, because it's like Jury showing that she's an adult, but also still filling a similar role, similar character moment, being confident like she was when she was young, whereas Miki's also an adult, but he's still a little shy like he was as a child. Speaking of character moments, and because this this story is not that long, which means I can kind of like hone in a little bit on some of these little individual things. Uh-huh. Um, she asks about Kozue, like, how's your sister? Uh-huh. He sighed. Living with an all-girl motorcycle gang and dealing heroin, considering some of the other things she's tried, she's fine. Uh- and like... So, yeah, th- this scene, th- th- that exchange. I know, right? For one thing, the point of it is for Mickey to be able to say, like, I can't control what she does. I just have to accept that, like, she's living her own life. But it's, like, a little extreme, right? I was thinking that, but then I thought one level deeper. And I thought, you know what? Whatever Kozue is actually doing with her life, she's probably telling Mickey that she's living with an all-girl motorcycle gang and dealing heroin. Good so, point, yeah. Uh, from, from that perspective, I kind of accept it. I think, like, you know, from a certain perspective, it's like, yeah, like, that's the thing people do. Like, it's it's not out of this world, but in this story, it felt a little like, wow, that's, like, maybe the most extreme thing the author could think of kind of thing. Not that it necessarily right. is, but it felt like it was played to be extreme. Um, and I feel right. like it could have been toned down a little. But I, I absolutely hear what you're saying. And I also felt that... It's also totally something Kozue would do, so... I mean, it, it's some, It's not something she wouldn't do. Exactly, right. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> She's going to be off doing whatever she wants as a wild animal, I'm sure. I mean, you know, what one expects... One, one hopes that people grow up, but I feel like she's such a free spirit in the sense of, like, wanting to take control of her life that it's kind of hard to imagine her going along the sort of... Yes, it's not become an office lady in, no, like, no. 90s Japan, right? But I think the reason it feels unbelievable is because she's from such a privileged background. Like, right. dealing heroin is not usually something you do unless you need to. But it could be because she rejected her entire background, so... Hmm. Uh, yeah, right, which is you also know. a possibility. But also, like, having those two things, it's like, uh, being with an all-girl motorcycle gang, but, like... Do you really tell your family or, like, your straight-laced brother that, like, specifically you're dealing heroin? No other drugs, just heroin, because that's your special... I mean, like, it was just a weird kind of setup for how... I don't know how realistic that is, you know? I'm just going to assume that she's living with an all-girl motorcycle gang and telling Mickey that she's dealing heroin. Yeah, like... That's my... To shock That's my perspective here. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, you you have a really good point about that. And it's the fact that he's not shocked. Yeah, I hear ya. Then Saoji's the next one who shows up. And he's working for a, like, insurance, very specific Tokyo Maritime Fire Insurance <laughs> and something company. This and I feel like that's also very... one to me. I, I, I feel like it's funny, but also, like, really fits the character. That, like, he would want to do the, you know, 90s Japan... During and maybe like a little bit post the bubble thing of like just signing your life over to a company and being like, I will rise in the ranks of this company and be a great company employee and the company will take care of me. And I feel like that would really appeal to Sionji. And yeah. part of the point of that, part of the point of that is that it doesn't really matter what your company does. 
like you don't sign up for it because you like insurance. You just like, you know, they, you do it, you do it because they'll have you and you will have them and you get married. Actually, you're right. And that, that sheds some light on it for me because I wasn't remembering the Japanese context of this culture, like being a businessman and no matter what business is right. a lot more similar for Sayonji's, you know, honor system and, and building its reputation than isn't our culture. Like if you told someone in our culture, like I'm working for an insurance company, you'd be like, ho hum, you're not a billionaire, but that's not the <laughs> same in Japan. So. Right. Um, and what I like about Sayonji's demeanor is that it is in some ways very similar, but he's also just way less of a jerk and kind of, he, he apologizes fairly readily for ways in which he was a jerk when he was young. And I feel like that, that's appropriate because, you know, living up to this age, he's got to have passed through that realization really? of like, oh yeah, I was a real asshole as a kid. I feel like this I connects. Mean, oh, sorry. Were you going to say something else? Or, or at least you would hope that, that he would have done that. Yeah. I was just going to say that I feel like this connects really well with like one of the earlier conversations we had about Utna. Um, I think the other Utna fanfic we did when we had some guests on where I was talking about how like their behavior, their shitty behavior mostly comes from being kids and not understanding better. So in a weird way, this, this fanfic was really satisfying to me because you see some of the shittier people like actually be more mature and make amends. Um, Toga might be an exception, but <laughs> yeah, Toga shows up with, you know, Nanami in tow because he got her to give him a ride. Um, and Toga, wait, what, what do, do we learn what Toga's been up to? Oh yeah. Toga's yeah. like, you know, he's being rich and he's on the board of directors of Otori Academy. And he like, he says it's partly to like keep an eye on Akio, but obviously he just, you know, wants to still probably want to just be Akio when he grew up and he did become Akio or whatever. Yeah. Well, he um, says he's living the life of the idle rich, but we actually don't get that until much later on. He's the only one who doesn't yeah. feel right away what he's doing. And then there's Nanami. And Nanami's cool because she clearly does not trust Toga at all anymore emotionally, which uh-huh. is good because she shouldn't. And so it's, it's very yeah. satisfying seeing her just like, you know, she doesn't trust what he says ever. And that's probably very, very good for her mental and emotional well-being. Also, like, what is her job now? An archaeologist? Archaeologist. And there's something about Nanami and her occupations in this sort of fanfic. I'm thinking back to Jacques Mart, hmm. where I think she ends up studying, like, she's like a sociologist or something, like, um, studying fairy tales, among other things, or that sort of thing. And it's like an Utanitayan, but it's also just, I don't know what it is about her character that makes, that that makes it seem kind of right for her to be literally or, you know, metaphorically digging for truth or like <laughs> yeah, objective I mean... truth or, or subjective truth. But like, but from a, like a rational, like perspective. I think it's what you would hope to see from the character because what's hard about parsing Nanami's character and the whole thing is that she's this victim to her brother's cruelty. And of course she's also really awful to a lot of other people, but she's very young 
And you can see how, like, her family situation has made her that way. And yet, she does always seem to be wanting to, like you said, like, find the truth. So you would hope she would come, like, grow up and, and, a fine, and do that in an adult way instead of, like, trying to manipulate people around her. Right. By the end of the series, she's become jaded in a way that makes her seem very, very astute and, like, critical of what's going on in kind of admirable ways. Mm-hmm. Also, she's just suffered so much. She's been manipulated as well so many times. Like, you just want to see a good ending for that character in which she doesn't become a shitty person because of abuse, but overcomes it. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of background that is never made completely clear about her having getting, getting her having been thrown out of the house by her stepfather at some point, and it's partially Toga's fault or something. Um, it's okay. I I didn't quite understand the whole situation, but you're not really expected to. Yeah, the, the only thing that I think you're supposed to take away from that is the fact that Toga, you know, how he lied to Nanami and told her that they weren't blood-related in the series. When they are. Right. Yeah, but he doesn't her- tell her in this continuity until after she's out of the house that they are blood related. Right, but it can't be that she was thrown out of the house because they thought she wasn't blood related no, no. because that had, like obviously her their parents know the situation. Whatever. Uh, yeah, um, I don't think that was it. I'm just trying to say that I think the main point right. was that it was more about Toga withholding this information until Nanami was in a really bad situation and then giving it to her. Yeah. It's nice just kind of them having some background, the characters that, you know, might. Um, she also jibes Mickey about some incident where he, quote, like, stole her boyfriend, unquote, and he protests, and she's just like, <laughs> yeah, whatever. It, yeah. I, I imagine it probably didn't exactly go down that way, and she probably knows it too, but she still, you know, pulls that out at him or whatever. I mean, I don't think any situation goes down that way, because you literally can't <laughs> steal a person, but... You know, there, it has to be mutual, right? Right. But, you know. And also, it's Miki. Like, <laughs> I doubt he and initiated then, anything. That's a really good point. Yeah, there's no way he was the one being proactive in anything like that. No, he probably didn't even want it to happen. He was probably, like, the victim. But anyway. And then Wakaba shows up, too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because the letter said, you know, former duelists and other people who should remember. Right. Wakaba is interesting here because you would think the obvious thing would for would be for her to be have some very strong emotional reaction to seeing Sionji there. And she doesn't. She has a reaction, but it's not that strong. Like she remembers what happened, and it's like a little bit embarrassing, but it's so distant that she's like even able to like just relate what happened to the assembled company. I mean, she was like what, thirteen or fourteen, right? Right. That's all they were? No. I think about 14? So, yeah. like, why would she care now at 24, you know? Oh, I think it's good. I just feel like I probably would have reached for the low-hanging fruit there, and it, it's kind of nice that the author didn't. Like, yeah. it, it, you do have this sense of distance between all of this stuff, which is definitely what the author is going for, right? Yeah. All the stuff that happened 10 years ago happened 10 years ago. What happened 10 years ago in my life? I was like, uh... Just graduated college. Right. Like, how close are you to those events now? Or, like, even Not people. Very. Unless you've yeah. kept those people around. But, like, yeah, no. Like, it's 
even hard to remember something that happened 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think it's even more significant for people in their 20s like that, where 10 years ago they were teenagers. Right. But I do like, you know, that was my thing, and I don't know if I fully expressed this before, but like with this author, they do illustrate the differences between adolescence and adulthood very well. Part of that was giving them all like very specific, respected jobs and like setting up their investment and their new positions and their new lives. And part of that was the fact that they were just like, you know, oh, well, we were kids and I sort of remember that, but who cares? And that actually right. goes on to the the main issue of this story, which is their lack of memory and also their lack of concern with not remembering. Right. Well, they start trying to figure out why they're all there, right? And it's like, well, we were on student council, but Wakaba wasn't. Like, what's the common thread there? And through conversation, they start to remember the presence of Utna. And uh-huh. that sort of starts out this process where they realize they're not remembering some things very well and are consciously trying to remember. And, you know, bits and pieces sort of come, come out um, as they start remembering more and more. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember how that all went down. I think it well, started in- with the them trying to find the connection and the conne- only connection Wakaba had was her letter that she sent to Sayonji. And they remember, you know, Sayonji remembers someone challenging him over it, but can't remember who. And, you know, they key in on it. It sort of comes in a couple of phases, and the first one is them remembering Utana. But even once they all remember Utana, there's like a second, and, uh, you know, I'm glossing over the the details here because it's a lot of conversation and sort of like sharing memories and that sort of thing. Um even once they remember Utana, there's like more at play there. And Jerry's like, wait, wait, why did I even care about this person? I understand, like, you know, you you were her best friend and you know you had this duel. Why do I remember her? In what context did I know her? Right. Because and- Wakaba's like, oh, I knew her since elementary school, but then everyone's like, but then why would I care about her? Right. Even though they do kind of remember her. And then they start remembering the duels. Mm-hmm. And, and I liked this because Duel in this in jury's mind has a capital D, and she even points out that she can literally not think of duel with a lowercase d. She's like, that doesn't no. It's only duel the duels. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Wakaba, on the other hand, right. And Nanami is explicit. She's like, when when you say duel, you're not talking about the same thing that the rest of us are talking about. It's. Interesting, the author doesn't even touch on the Black Rose arc in terms of, like, what Wakaba's not remembering. Yeah. But, I mean, I think that makes it a less sprawling piece. It's a little bit more focused to not deal with that, I guess. I know. I thought about that for a moment. I was like, oh, but Wakaba was involved in... Of course, she doesn't remember that. That's not what this piece is about. It's not what the piece is about. I mean, it's not like it should be written out necessarily because she doesn't remember that in the same way that all the rest of them don't remember their duels, right? It's the same kind of thing. I guess, and in other, but, in other works I've read, Black Rose duelists do get involved on this sort of thing. I'm thinking of Jacques Amart specifically uh-huh. again. That, like, they all kind of get their memories restored at one point or another. And, I mean, not all the Black Rose duelists, but at least a couple of them do as well. Well, I think in my mm-hmm. mind, this author wanted to confront a specific scope. And the Black mm-hmm. Rose arc is, like, the people who are involved, who were, like, taken over by the Black Rose seal... 
they were basically not themselves. Their emotions were amplified, and they didn't even remember it right after the fact. Whereas, I mean, the duelists... If you asked them at the time, they would say they were the most themselves. A good point. <laughs> That's a really good point. But it is a different experience than... Because they, they, it was a brief moment where... Right. And they didn't remember immediately after. You know, just like this, this blip. Whereas with the student council, this went on for years and they knew the whole time. So I feel like that's kind of different, you know? Yeah. And as they start remembering more and they remember, you know, they remember Utana, they remember the duels, they remember Anthe. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of some more direct discussion of Anthe's role among these, you know, in this conversation than I feel like you ever got in the series itself. Um, no, but it's the stuff, you know, we kind of all think. To, right, exactly. So what I'm looking here is like, they're talking about Anthe and Wakaba's like, what was so special about her? It wasn't so much her as it was what she represented, Toga replied. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mickey-kun, but when you looked at her, didn't you see all the things that you'd ever wanted from someone? He continues. Didn't she almost symbolize everything you could ever just... Dis- and then, like, um, Nanami, like, knees him or something in the abdomen, apparently. Yeah. And she tries to kind of cut some of the metaphorical bullshit kind of stuff. And I, I appreciate Nanami. Yeah. She, yeah. she says, like, look, yeah, you... It's easy to say, like, oh, you know, she was this thing that represented things, whatever. It's just, like, we dueled because it seemed like a good idea at the time, and we were young and dumb. And, you know, people are... People do stupid things that seem like a good idea at the time, and that's just humans. <laughs> and it's exactly what Anami would say. <laughs> I like that perspective, yeah. I mean, it's a good one. And, and, and what I like is that I think... And, you know... Chris Davies, he can correct me if I'm wrong, you know, maybe he'll listen to this. But I think that what he was trying to do here is present, because I know that Nanami is like his favorite character, he mentions that at the end, or one of his favorites, <laughs> he mentions that at the end, is present a lot of different perspectives. And one of the perspectives is that Anthe is this being that embodies everyone's possible desires, and in fact brings out some of their darkest desires. For instance, Jury whose perspective this story is told in most of the time, sees her later as, um, oh my god, what's her name? The woman she was Shiori. Like, Shiori, thank you. Um, yeah, and I mean, you have that scene in Jury's first episode where, uh-huh. you know, Anthe echoes the, like, holding out a rose pose, you know, that Shiori did, and I think maybe repeats one of her lines and Jury slaps her and, like, right. sees her as Shiori for a moment. So it's, you know, it's coming out of something in canon, for sure. Yeah, so you, you get, exactly, and you get that, you know, and you get this desire thing, like, you know, how much Shimiki really wanted to get with Anthe. Um, all these desire things and why she wanted, people wanted to possess her as the Rose Bride, but were also creeped out and terrified by her. But you also mm-hmm. get Nanami's perspective, and I think Nanami might be weirdly the most reasonable one because she like never felt a possession towards Anthe as far as I can tell. And she no, and this right. fanfic is just like, y'all stupid. Like you were you're just <laughs> being childish. Even though in the series she's represented as the most childish one because she literally thinks she can lay an egg to give birth. So <laughs> it's it's a strange dichotomy and I love how the author represents 
it in their adulthood in this similar way. Mm-hmm. What ends up happening over this conversation is that people start kind of echoing sort of emotional places or things that they did when they were that age 10 years ago. And I think the first one is when Nanami's talking directly to Toga and saying like, you know, I don't, I don't trust you at all, but there's part of me that, you know, still remembers how I felt at th- like at 13 towards you and how like you were the center of my world. And I still love you like somewhere in my heart. She says, I still love you, Onisama, because we've got the fan Japanese going on in here. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the first one that they feel like kind of a buildup of some presence or, you know, it's described as like a wave of static electricity, like something happening here that is strange and unexplained. Right. And do you feel like you can identify like what sparks that in particular? Well, it's supposed to be them kind of somehow returning to their past selves. But it doesn't work that well for me because it's a little inconsistent what that means from person to person. Nanami is saying, like, I still have some of the feelings of, like, my 13-year-old self in me. Like, you know, towards uh-huh. towards how I feel towards Toga. And, like, that's cool. But then doesn't Mickey just pull out his stopwatch and, like, you know, use it and, like, that counts for him or something? It does, but... That doesn't have, like, he... any... That's nothing like the same kind of thing. I, I, I actually kind of... That's a mannerism. I kind of disagree, because... Mickey clicking the stopwatch is such a big thing in, in the series. It's, it's repetitive and it makes me think of like compulsive behaviors, right? And mm-hmm. like compulsive behaviors are usually reactions to traumatic events or they're like a calming signal and you might develop through that. But when you return to a compulsion, it's usually a sign of regression, like in mental health, um, mm-hmm. it's considered regression. So that's how I read it. Um, and he also said that he gave his stopwatch to um, Suibuki, but he bought a new one the next day because that comes up. So it's obviously right. an object that he's so attached to clicking that it's kind of a compulsive behavior. So to me, it was like returning to a childhood compulsion as a form of basically regression. Okay, I guess I buy that. And then... You know, other things like Wakaba kind of does her jumping on Utena's back thing to Sionji. Um, and that is, you know, that makes the pulse get stronger as well. And I, I can understand that in terms of like, it's her remembering how she felt to- towards Utena. Toga does the chick speech. Um, because at this point, they've caught on to kind of like what's going on here. Mickey throws out his theory and he's correct that like reverting to old patterns of behavior seems to be kind of activating this. And that's probably yeah. why they were gathered there. And what they call it is they think there's a miracle that's going to happen if they, they do all these things right to revert to their childhood. Which, you know, but, I would like to analyze it. You know, it seems like a strange thing. They've come to their adulthood and, and now they're like, oh, if we revert to our childhood, a miracle will happen. Well, that's that's just a term Mickey uses at the very end. Yes. They, you know, they, they sense something going on. They're saying, like, yeah, this is, like, strange and unexplainable. And, you know, they would probably describe it as, like, non a non-natural experience mostly. But Jury's holding back. She doesn't even join in on the chick speech. And she's saying, like, yeah, this is very weird, but, like, it doesn't make any sense what we're doing here. That's, she's and, right. 
And here is, well, that's, yeah, fair enough. And so the sequence here is, Senpai, Miki snapped. Can't you feel it? Can't you feel that something's about to happen? No, Jury lied firmly. In fact, the sensation of imminence was almost overpowering. I like that sensation of imminence there. I like that too, line. because it's kind of how you feel when you watch like the elevator go up and the speech actually happen. You know, it's like something's going to happen. So anyway. <laughs> His face was frustrated beyond words. Jury, for God's sake, we've got a repeated controlled event. You're holding back a miracle out of pure stubbornness. And then she she tells him there's no such thing as miracles, and that's what does it for her, which is kind of clever. I'm not sure if I actually fully got that. Um, what do you mean? That was like her catchphrase for at least, you know, the early part of, you know, her first episode and probably her second episode at oh. least. Oh. No, I totally missed that. <laughs> I was just reading it as like, you know, as what she was saying. Okay, I, I read it Well, totally that explains wrong. why you didn't quite get, you know, what the common thread there was. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, of course, and, and I don't know why I didn't remember that, but anyway, that makes way more sense. Um, however, I do think the I- the idea of a miracle is being used in multiple ways here, and a miracle does happen, I guess. Yes, kind of in the center of the clearing they're in, they see a vision, um, you know, kind of like a scrying sort of vision of a bar, a woman with pink hair, it's Utana. Um, uh-huh. we're just going to accept that, you know, pink hair is a thing. It's fine. It's anime. Um, I mean, of course. And she's described as feel looking very lost, like her in the, in her eyes, the, the windows of her soul. She was yes. ancient beyond her belief and every wound that she bore could be seen written there. Uh, they were the eyes of a woman who doubted that she had ever had hope to begin with. And so, she's somehow like lost and or broken but from her experiences but still like kind of trucking on and living it's it's even like worse than just that they say it's not the eyes of someone who has lost hope but it was lost the belief that hope ever existed i was like oh my god heartbroken because at the end of utna of course you want to think the anthony and utna escape together and they're together but they're not in the story and it is so sad so it's been a well, decade, and she's just in a bar alone, and the bartender, like, mocks her, being, like, honored customer, which is in a sarcastic <laughs> tone. If you're not going to order anything, you just have to leave. And her ocean blue or sea blue eyes, as they're alternately described, are just so sad. Yeah. But then she looks up, and she sees all of them, too. And gets a slight smile and orders tea at the bar. Yeah. Which is cute. Which is good, yeah. The smile is described as something about the muscles not having been used in a long time, which (laughs) makes the smiling seem sad. However, the tea, ordering tea at the bar, comes back again. Yeah. Um, A little bit later. It is itself a callback. Yeah. And so... In terms of what's going on with the main characters here, the the image dissolves and everybody kind of starts to leave. Um, Wakaba's the first one to get up and she's just like, well, that was too weird for me. I'm out of here. I do not want to get involved in, like, you know, this strange and arcane stuff anymore. You'd think there might have been a little bit more reaction from her at seeing Utena, but I know. whatever. I was super you know, disappointed and- in her because she was really upset with herself in this story that she couldn't even remember her best friend. Mm-hmm. And then she saw her best friend 
being miserable. And she was just like, whatever, that's too weird for me. Yeah, I can't deal with this. And I mean, that's a human thing to do. It's, you know, I can imagine a person doing that. But, you know, you would think, you would hope one as an Udina fan would be happy to see Wakaba kind of step up a little bit more yeah. in terms of what she feels at that. I was also disappointed because she goes off with Sayonji. Yeah, Sayonji sort of like presses like, hey, can we make this a date? I'm not sure where he's coming from with this. And I'm, I'm summarizing their conversation, you know, heavily here. But um, not quite sure why she grabbed his attention quite so quickly, but that's okay. We'll pass over it. Uh, I mean, there was this whole reveal that he didn't remember that she had a big crush on him in high school. And if he's still, you know, if he's like kind of a playboy or if he's just trying to get laid, he just saw someone who's relatively cute who had a crush on him in high school to the point where she wrote him a love letter. And he's like, oh, we should go off together. That's, that's how probably I, the most rational explanation. Yeah, yeah, that's how I read it. Um, though, I think maybe the author wanted us to think that Seonji had come to a point where he was more mature and maybe this would be a real relationship. I, I don't know. I don't, we don't There's nothing there, nothing there to suggest that in terms of what they've communicated to each other, I would say. Right. But the thing but, that the author does do is has basically everyone go off in pairs. And yeah, it's neat. And I kind of like that because this is a significant experience and they all need someone by their side to comfort them. Yeah. And so I like Nanami's line. She invites Mickey. She says, I've got a plane to, to a dig in Iran in 12 hours. I figure I can spend a few of them arguing with someone about what just happened. Up to it, up for it, Mickey? And yeah, I like that too. Like, of course you need to like process that with somebody. And I always liked the little bit of kind of Nanami Mickey friendship, <laughs> you know, in the show. Like for a, for a hot second in like episode four, she has a crush on him, but then they kind of set that aside and, you know, right. she crashes with him for a night in like, you know, episode 34 or whatever. I, I don't know my episode numbers too well when she's like run away from home. Yeah. yeah. So like, I, I like that they, you know, even they don't seem to be in close touch either, but like of all the people, he's the one who she would voluntarily want to spend any time with. And they were the same age, right? Which right. would have been yeah, significant for being that young. Um, I, I like it too, because I appreciate this author is kind to Nanami. I mean, she can be really cruel as a kid in the show, but there's so much evidence that she's just very young and naive. Very naive. So I like yeah. showing her as a grown-up being a kinder, more understanding person who can have real relationships. Like, even in this fanfic, it's really good, because she goes on to, like, talk about how she can remember how she feels about Toga, but she still resents him for what he did to her, how he denied her, and how, like, she's just... Uh, you know, a grown-up now. She's beyond that. Mm-hmm. And it's cute that she's with Miki because Miki's always been a sweetheart. Mm-hmm. And then... To- that leaves Jury with Toga. <laughs> but uh, they're not gonna hang out, you know, nope. like friends. Nope. <laughs> she does accuse him of knowing what was going on to begin with, and he's like, no, not really. It, it turns out he kind of, like, remembered things maybe a little bit more earlier than they did, or at least some things. But he doesn't... He He's also certainly not the person who arranged it. Right. And that was more a vehicle for a jury 
to like, at first she's like, you totally did this, right? And then as she slowly realizes, she's basically like, you're the sort of man who would do this and not this. It's like, she knows him well enough to know that he had recognized it maybe minutes before they did. But what that draws upon is the fact she realizes that someone else did this. Yeah, her line is, after Toga leaves, it wasn't him, meaning Toga, Juri said aloud quietly, and it couldn't have been her, meaning Utena, and it wouldn't have been the other one, meaning Akio. So that only leaves one person to send the letters. Mm-hmm. And then Anthe steps out. Hell yeah. Yeah. Anthe's cool. I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this this author like pinned down the characters all in a way that I really want them to be shown. They're not great or perfect, but they're better versions of themselves than they were when they were kids. And Anthe is just she was never a kid in the show, right? You know, she was already right. thousands of years old. She's this dark, terrifying presence, and I love it. It's fun when Anthe gets to be witchy, yeah. Um, but any, I mean, not that she's malevolent at all here. Like, she comes out and she chats with Jury. And, right. and that's what's and perfect saying, like, about it. You know, she terrifies Jury, but she's also, like, just a person. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's part of their conversation. Part of the conversation is Anthe kind of explaining, like, yeah, I facilitated this, but, you know, I needed... You were the ones who gave it power and focus. And as far as I know, it re- what it revealed was the truth. You know, it's a, it's not a exact science or whatever. And um, she's like, you know, Jerry asks how, and she's just like, I'm not going to try to explain all that. Yeah. She ends up, Jerry asks, like, what started all this going? And Anthe tells a slightly expanded tale of the rose. It's, um, you know, just of like yeah. her backstory and Akio's backstory and, you know, what happened with Dios and stuff. I mean, it's pretty much everything we knew from the series, right? Like, it's not anything new. That's, that's the thing. It's, you know, tiny little hints are new. I feel like the things that are new are the things that you would have assumed anyway. Like, she spells out some things that didn't really need to be spelled out. Like, um, kind of, exactly how you know that they've that they've done this thousands of times before which was implied heavily in like the you know very last scene with akio or you know a few other times that you know she i mean tiny little bits tiny little bits she alone Uh possesses the magic to deceive and beglamour the heroes along their paths she's telling it fairy tale style it's like sure you can attribute that power only to anthe that's fine i mean that that fits with some of the things that we see Uh um but i just didn't really think it was necessary it's like if you're an Utena fan and you've watched the series, post-series, and you can understand this fanfic, you kind of get all this content. Agreed. Yeah. But, um... And this one doesn't even include a fax machine. <laughs> and therefore it's inferior. Yeah, no, no, I agree with that in the sense that, like, it just it felt like a retelling. But I guess I kind of understand in the sense that, like, I don't know, it's being retold to Jury, who maybe hasn't heard it literally before. It's just, it, the, I guess what makes it weird about that is that why is this story so much in Jury's perspective? But I, I guess maybe it had to be. I, I don't know. Uh, I'm a little bit lost well, on that. 
it makes sense in that kind of from a story flow perspective, because the jury would be like the last holdout in that process. The jury would be like most kind of skeptical going in. Um, the jury is in some ways a relatively straightforward perspective to have, as opposed to say this story from Nanami's perspective or something, which would have been right. a lot more about Nanami than this version of the story was about jury, if that makes sense. Actually, you have a really good point. And, and now that I'm thinking about it a little bit more, um, there's a large part of what Anthe ends up telling Jerry at the very end, which is she says she rejected Utna over petty considerations like gender. Ah. And Jerry is a one lesbian. The, so maybe. That's one of the two notes that the author oh, commented okay. on specifically yeah. when I said that he was, you know, that we were going to do another one of his fanfics from the 90s. Uh-huh. He said. The other thing, this was the second thing, I should say is that I'm uncomfortable with how I portrayed Anthe at one point in suggesting that she rejected Utena because of her gender. These days, looking back at that episode, I think she would have done that to anybody who tried to, quote, rescue, unquote, her. Which I think is very true. I think that's very true as well. But It, it wasn't about... I, I mean, she does say in that moment after she stabs Utena in the back, right? She's like, uh-huh. oh, you know, whatever, you're just a girl, you know, you couldn't become a prince. But that's just because it was a cruel thing to say in the moment, right? Sure. She was just trying to be hurtful. I take both sides because I do think that Utna is a narrative about, in particular, women and lesbian relationships, and in particular, like, social roles. Like, I think the big part of Utna is, like, you must grow up to be a man who marries a woman, a woman who marries a man, and fulfill the roles that women and men do in heterosexual relationships. So actually that part, that particular scene you were speaking about to me was the one I felt was, I don't think Anthe actually felt that way, but I felt like she said that to reinforce heterosexuality, which is the myth of adulthood that Utna is trying to debunk, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. But I mean, I just, I didn't read that as being a from the heart fully comment in terms of like, you know, if you were a boy, then this would be a different story. No, no, and no. So no. I think, I, I and so I that. think that, yeah. the, I think the author was, you know, was right to kind of say he would do that differently now. Right. Yeah. No, you're right about that. And it, but, um, considering the story now from what it is, yeah, I, I definitely, I, I, I'm with you. I don't think Anthony, after living a thousand years, was going to reject anyone based on their gender. But mm-hmm. Utna is also about gender and being gay. So there's an element of that <laughs> there. <laughs> but in the story, what works well is the fact that Jury, and you know, I'm glad the authors come to that, at, like, and understands that and has, like, talked about that, and that's cool. But, uh, in the story itself, having Jury be the receptive party as a lesbian kind of makes it work, I guess, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Like, what if this conversation was with Mickey? Like, this, they're not really relating in the same way. Mm-hmm. Jerry is the only other woman. I mean, there's Nanami, and and I don't want to discount Nanami, but in the show, she was very far separated from the realities of both things that were happening. Right. She kind of had her own concerns going on for most of that series, yeah. Right, and Wakaba didn't know about the duels at all, so there were very few other women who were really present, like Jury was present. And also, Jury had really strong struggles in the fact that the woman she loved was in love with a man. Like, 
significant lesbian <laughs> struggle. <laughs> Wait, jury? Mm-hmm. I mean, well, sure, she was, was never sure in love was with... Never in love. You're right, I'm sorry. With that guy. No, no, I mean, but she... I don't know about Ruka, because I, I don't really understand the Ruka episodes to begin with. Sorry, I didn't but... mean in love, but, like, you know, the jury felt like she chose him over... Right, you know right. what I mean. And there's also this conversation where, you know, Anthe says, yeah, I've been looking for Utna for 10 years and no luck, which is why she's arranged all this. Like, she's, you know, looking for kind of ways to, to track her down, right? Um, and she, she relates the tea thing, which is that because Utna ordered tea, that is a sign that she remembered, she's starting to remember uh-huh. because they made that promise to drink tea together in 10 years, 10 years ago. Uh-huh. Um, and Jury is saying, like, and, you know, she says, I, I have to find her. I love her. Jerry says, well, what if you track her down and, like, she doesn't feel the same way that you do about her? And Anthony says, it doesn't matter. And she, when Jerry protests, Anthony has this little Galadriel moment where kind of, like, some of the the veil drops from her um, kind of blending in sort of persona into the sort of, like, I am some sort of 10,000-year-old entity, you know, full yeah. being. And that's satisfying. It's like when... That's part of the the coolness of, you know, Anthe's characters that that is there. Even if you very rarely see her kind of evoke it. Right. Um, yeah, I think we spoke about this a little bit already, but yeah, Anthe is described as being... When she does appear... You know, we, we talked about before how she embodies desire, right? When she does appear to Jerry, she looks like Shiori to her, and it makes her stomach, like, drop into, like, this deep pit. So it's not just desire, right? It's, like, a really negative form of desire. And Anthe says at that point, she's like, I'm sorry, I've been trying to control it, but I'm still not great at it, basically. Well, no, no, she's like, I'm a lot better at controlling it now, but sometimes it still slips. Yeah. And... I don't know how I feel about that because it plays into the narrative that like what the shitty things that people like Jury and Sionji did in like slapping around Anthony or whatever is because of, you know, whatever supernatural swords of hatred presence thing she has going on. Uh, I And it and it's like but but I kind of want to be with Nanami on this one and be like, "Oh, you were just shitty kids for a while." Like, you know, and like, I don't want that responsibility to be taken off them, necessarily. I, uh, well, I say, I mean, I'm if I, if I understand what you're saying, I think there's a difference between being shitty kids and being kids who, like, literally slap around their partners, right? Right. Um, I guess that's true. I would take that as a more serious what? offense. I mean, people can change and they can grow. Don't miss it. But... I do think that you can take it as people reacting because Anthea was nothing but sweet and yet she was totally taken advantage of and abused. You can take it as people seeing that darkness, but because they were weak, having a negative reaction to that darkness. And that plays very well into the narrative of like how people cope with trauma or their own abuse, you know, things that happen to them. Do they take it and let it become shitty to other people, or do they Hmm. become better? Well, I guess there's also the, I guess if you turn this around, you know, the culpability that's not addressed here is that Anthe did specifically kind of play to 
these emotional weaknesses and, you know, harmful stuff in a lot of the duelists. Like, you know, she twists the knife with Sionji yes. very deliberately and, you know, kind of specifically sets herself up to be an object of Miki's desire and, like, specifically kind of emulates Shiori to get, you know, jury all worked up. Well, and, you know, that- um, sends, sends elephants at Nanami. <laughs> that doesn't really count. Well, that's actually a really good. Oh, question. She, 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 she gives the she gives the kitten to Toga to, you know, yeah, to push Nanami over the edge, and you know other characters too, like with Kanai and such. Like she she does a lot of stuff that is very specifically harmful to these people, and she doesn't really address that directly in this fanfic. No, that's a really good point. I actually think the reason, the way the uh, sorry, not the reason, but the way the author addressed it was by this like inadvertent negativity that she exuded and now she's learned to better control it whereas i do think you're right in the fact that the series she does things a little more deliberately than that there's also kind of like an implication of amends here sort of like once they have this conversation about you know about all thing all this stuff and jury says like you're not even remotely human are you and Anthony has a good line where she says, I'm as human as you would be, Arisagawa Jury, had you been a slave to your mistakes mm-hmm. for 10,000 years. Jury turned away first, which I think is a good line, too. Yeah. But it, anyway, then, then Anthony says, In any event, I have what I desired, an idea of where she might be. It is, if nothing else, a beginning. Anthony paused and continued in a somewhat lighter tone. And as for you who called yourselves duelists, your memories are once again your own. That should perhaps ease certain frustrations in your lives. In any event, I must be going. And I, I like that idea that, like, you know, she's trying to be kind of uh, slightly unfuck up these people who she had a role in fucking up when they were kids. When they were kids, not when she was a kid. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. It, it doesn't have that much weight because we don't see any particular frustrations in their lives leading from their lack of memory. Um. But I'll take I'll take her word for it. I guess, but, like, to be honest, I don't... The the only reason I can think that Anthony called them all here is that was the only way through their collective memory that she could get the miracle of, or what they call it, of contacting Utna, rather than having oh, anything oh, yeah. to do with anything being good for them. I, I, I think mean, that, that was a all, lot more incidental, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I honestly think she had, did not care one little shit about these other people. <laughs> well, that's also in character. Yes. Um, um, I think. It's it's hard to know what's in Anthony's character. I think there are many readings. But from the story and my interpretation, I glean that this was just providing energy to finding Utna and not really about them. For her. And then finally... Um, at jury's request, she finishes the quotation. The secret of being a child is never knowing you will one day die. The secret of being an adult is never forgetting that you were once immortal. That's a good enough line that I feel like it must be from something, right? I swear to God, I feel like I heard that in Utna. <laughs> but mm. if I didn't, then props to the author. I've heard, I feel like I've heard it somewhere, but I don't know that for sure. It's very good, yeah. though. <laughs> and then she leaves. And then there's sort of a little falling action here where when Jury's walking home. And I guess I should mention the Jury in her head has been like, oh yeah, I'm like specifically not in any relationships because all of the only person I wanted was Shiori and that didn't work out, so fuck it. 
Aww. like that's kind of her attitude. Um, right. But then she has a she has a meat cute. It's not the best meat cute. Because this girl who she runs into who has good taste in, you know, English literature or whatever is going to be entering the university that she teaches at as a student. And so, so I don't really want that to be the start of a yeah, relationship. So she's underage, excited to have her as a professor. Totally fucking inappropriate. Well, Sorry. I mean, she's not necessarily underage, but like, that's still but not. Aren't they the best. on a Tory? Like, aren't they at the school at a Tory? No. No, 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 no. no. Oh. Uh, oh, the shrine. Oh, that's shrine, right. Which is. My oh, bad. And but still, to like to- Tokyo region. I guess and Jerry's teaching at yeah. Sorry, go on. And Jerry's teaching at Tokyo University, and Otori is in some other prefecture that I forget. Right, right. I-, I interpreted it as someone who was excited to start college, but no, maybe she was already in college. It doesn't matter. Well, no, no. She, she, she is getting excited to start college. That doesn't mean she's underage in a legal sense. Okay, so she could be eighteen. Yeah, she probably is. Is what I'm saying because she's like just now. You know, and Jerry's like twenty eight or twenty seven or twenty six. Twenty six. I I don't care. <laughs> no, I'm not saying uncomfortable with this meat cute. Right. No. Exactly. Um, now the other thing about it is that the person is Maya Ibuki Ibuki from Evangelion. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and I mean that's yeah. cute. It's probably also like the only other anime lesbian that anyone knew about in the 1990s. Sure. So great. Um, but it's supposed to be significant because, um, jury is, is implied to kind of be softening a bit in her, like, absolute stances towards life. She's thinking, there are no miracles, she thought with iron certainty. Only mysterious things we don't understand yet. But it may just be, may, only may, that there are some things about life that I have yet to understand. Perhaps she'll help me learn a few of them. Maybe not because she's... Uh, a student at the university that you teach at, and don't don't do it, jury. Yeah, the, the weird part was that she treated jury with reverence. You know, like she was so embarrassed that was the person she'd run <laughs> into. You're like, oh my god, you're an amazing professor. I respect you so much. It's like that's when power dynamics become a problem. When someone hero worships you, you should not date them. That's wrong. Anyway, half jury's age plus seven would be twenty, I think. But that's my point. The point is the power (laughs) dynamics. Yeah, no, it is. If someone literally thinks you're, like, godlike, you should not date them. Oh, (laughs) God. Anyway. Um, Um, I'm willing to forgive the author for that. They meant it to be cute. Right. I I hope they understand now the problematic elements. (laughs) Moving on. And then there's an epilogue, which goes back to... Anthe relating the story of Utena to this kid at the grave and, you know, spelling out the the meaning of the end of the series um, that because she accomplished what she set out to do because she believed that her friend was worth more than her friend believed that she herself was worth. You know, Jerry, uh, Anthe spells out that, like, you can only save someone if they want to be saved. Right. And, you know, that's all very just, like, spot on the meaning of the ending of Utena mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um, and then she explains that, you know, like, the prince disappeared, and she's looking for her, 
it's interesting because this does not directly relate to anything that happened in the main part of the story, the prologue and the epilogue. Anthe isn't talking about that stuff directly either. Um, it's just kind of showing that Anthe's still out there looking at whatever point this is happening at, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, I guess it's the continuation of Anthe's quest to find Utna. Right. In that yeah. way. Um, That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Now, I don't think it adds much to the story and might even distract from it a little bit, but it does have a role in a larger sense, which is what the other note that Chris Davies sent is addressing. He says, there's one thing you should know about this story going in. I did not tell you this going in. Sorry, Tori. It isn't made clear anywhere in the tale itself. The young girl who features in this story is a character of his, Sheila Tenokayo, sometimes Tenkai, Uh the orphan daughter of Sailor Uranus and Sailor Neptune. I'd written a fair amount about her by this point, but this was the first time I flashed back to her childhood. And he comments that he never did finish the big story that he was going to write about her, but that's not really important. Yeah. And so it it's an OC. It fits into other works that this is, you know, going to share the continuity with. And so it's not really intended to only speak to the content of 10 years right, after itself. Right. Yeah, I remember that from his author's note. Oh, does it say that? To say that there too. Yeah, that. Well, it's it's just. Oh, Sheila Tenkai, right? Yeah, it's just something about Sheila. Um, but you know, for me, that doesn't really mean much, having not read a lot of his other works. Um, it's it's nice though to to know that an author is so. I don't know, interested in their own characters that they mean so much to them that they they bring them around full circle into into other works and other writings. I do also feel, though, that um, I sometimes wonder if the attention to their own characters can detract from the main work. And in this sense, I don't think it did. I would say it actually does a little bit. Oh, Not okay. a lot, right. just a little bit. I think it would have been a tighter story without, you know, that kind of uh, prologue epilogue. Um, I will say I don't think it was necessary as a prologue. I will say at the in the epilogue, the only thing it added was the fact that Anthe showed her kindness because, you know, she's shown instances of being unkind, being this thousands of years old tortured being, showed her kindness right. to a young girl who represented Utna in a way and showed that when she was reunited with Utna, she would also be kind to her, which I do think is a question we have in Utna is, is Anthe really a kind person. And was she mm. good for Utna, who is a young girl when Anthe's thousands of years old? Um, it's a question. I see. So I, I see Sheila in this as a foil. But that prologue, I almost, like I said, I almost forgot about it. Like, I didn't know why it was there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the story. And... Like I said, it's always interesting seeing different people's takes on this sort of, like, post-series Utna. Tori, did you ever read the Chiyo Saito sequel manga? No. Um, not a sequel, no. I mean, I think I asked you that, like, the first time we did an Utna fanfic on this series, and we were <laughs> like, nope. I mean, she, she wrote a her own, like, post-series kind of Utna manga in three parts. <laughs> I think you know, focusing on 
Sorry, focusing on the characters, you oh. know, in in pairs, whatever. It's like one for Toga and Sionji mostly, uh-huh. one for pretty much um, Juri Shiori, and one for Miki Kozue. Yeah, I think not I, in that order. I've always been really hesitant around Utna fan works because I, I think the series is so complex. There's still parts of it I might even be parsing for myself. I hesitate to put... Like, I want to understand other people's perspectives, but I hesitate to absorb another narrative. You know what I mean? It, it's interesting to describe a Chiho Saito written manga as an Utena fan work, but I don't think that's necessarily um, inaccurate. Yeah, I mean... Because sorry, I didn't she... necessarily mean to describe it that way. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, apropos of nothing, one of the interesting things about that is that it's really not a sequel to her own manga. Like, she draws in a lot of stuff from the anime that she wanted to use. Sure. And, like, doesn't really fit if you if you read her manga and then you read those and you try to make them the same continuity. It doesn't quite make sense. Huh. It doesn't really make sense as an anime sequel either, but, like, she draws on that sort of stuff from the versions that she was not directly responsible for. So in that sense, there's kind of, like, an element of, of fan work about it, I would say. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, where I was going with that was it that, but that is an interesting way to put it. <laughs> My point was is that I um, I do want to read it. I'm just, I feel like I'm still absorbing Utna's its own work, which is which is my point about fan works. I haven't read a lot of them as well. Mm-hmm. But that is interesting. All right, well, let's get back to talking about this fan work then. Yeah. What are our complaints before we end on praise? What are your complaints? I already said I don't really think the prologue epilogue is necessary. Mm-hmm. And I, I still don't really, I don't think the epilogue, I mean, you can't just leave the epilogue there, <laughs> but I also don't think you really lose much if you miss it. I think you get enough of, like, of Anthe still looking for Utna and of Anthe being, like, a a person who cares deeply about Utena just from the conversation with Jury. I think you get that fine. Right. And the other thing I would say is that I somehow feel like the core sequence of them remembering themselves 10 years ago could have been more resonant. But I'm not quite sure what I would do. Like, I mean, I'm no writer. I just feel like just reverting kind of like to surface level things that they did back then, which is mostly what you see, it's like, I can, for Jury, I feel like it works a little bit better. For Nanami, she kind of gets to, like, talk about her emotions. But it's like, I imagine there is something going on internally with Toga in saying the chick speech again, but you don't get to hear it. Uh-huh. Wakaba's kind of, like, memory of Utana as, as like, a, a friend is evoked in her glomping Sayonji's back or whatever and shouting, Utana-sama! But, like, we don't get any kind of emotional resonance with that uh-huh. either. Um, I just feel like that could have been kind of a more of a core part of the story and kind of like digging, you know, scratching these scabbed over wounds from their childhood or like, you know, recalling their, their childhood and kind of like from an adult perspective. And it, and it's kind of a buildup of the plot, you know, up to the climax of the plot. But I feel like I want it to be more of an emotional buildup and a climax of, of character stuff as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm completely agreeing with you. And actually that touches on something really important for me. Like the characters had a little bit, you know, I liked that the author dug at the characters a little bit, 
But the thing that felt, it was like sometimes a little superficial. And actually the most superficial thing to me was Utna. She shows up and she is tragically sad because why? She doesn't have Anthe. Okay. Yeah. It's been 10 years. Um, She was always (laughs) super fucking strong. And maybe she's always been searching for Anthe and that's great. But why is she so fucking defeated? You know? I took that to be... It didn't feel like she was real. A metaphysical thing. Because, like, you don't don't really understand what getting stabbed by the swords representing humanity's hatred does to one. But so I, I was reading that as that, like, okay. she she has in some, you know, real metaphysical sense kind of been reduced by that experience. I know, but I still but, don't like that because the thing is, is that, sorry, are we going to say more? I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, go on. I was going to say, the only reason I wouldn't like that is in the show, Utna is a symbol of, you know, like a young woman who's trying to find her own identity. And part of that is not being a traditional woman, is being, like, trying to be a prince. And and maybe that lets her down sometimes. There are points where, you know, like, for instance, with Akio, where she, like, has sex Reconsiders with Akio. That. And, like, she almost, like, submits to the traditional roles of women, but then she has to build herself up again. She's not a superficial character. She's had so many struggles and challenges. I hate to see her at the end be defeated. I want Mm. to see her. She's already been tried. She's already struggled. She's been stabbed with the swords. I want to see her rise up against that. I think that's the message of Utna that I want to see, you know, the escape at the end, especially in the movie, you know, like the escape. I I want to see something positive, not, just a woman who's struggled against the patriarchy her whole life and has become more defeated. Mm. If that makes sense. I think probably what the author was going for was that they wanted it to be a reverse, you know, a role switch of then Anthe needing, uh-huh. you know, of, of Uta needing Anthe to, to come and, and help her and like pull her out of whatever state she's in. Just like Anthe needed the help to be kind of jarred out of this, you know, um, however long uh, bad dynamics that she found herself right. acting out. And, like, I understand that. And I will say... But I, I also hear what you're saying, though, is that, like, it it seems like it's just not... not taking Utina fully as a character... Yeah, I mean, she, she in, could into be... This narrative. She could be tragically sad, but I, I... It was described as her being, like, a woman who not only was hopeless, but had never felt hope. I was like, oh, come on. Like, she's felt hope. <laughs> like, don't destroy her, you know? Like, give right. her some hope. A- and also, I-, I do appreciate that Anthe is getting to be the strong one in this, just like she is in the in, a, in the movie, right? You know, she gets to be the strong one. That's cool. You know, and Anthe gets to be the kind one and the strong one. But then give it some resolution, right? I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Mm-hmm. No, no, I, I hear you. I understand why that would bother you a little bit. Uh, but let's end on praise, stuff that we want to say this fanfic did well. And this is, by the way, a fanfic that gets recommended. You know, it's on the <laughs> TV Tropes recommendation page. <laughs> uh, fanfic things like 
like I check sometimes. And I remember the the name of this fanfic coming up back in the day on in the Rose Garden forums as well as like one of the post series fanfics worth reading. I would definitely recommend it. It's really well written. And I think I already I would spoke s- before to the, the characters being great as adults. Like, they're still themselves, but they're adults, and that's super cool. Yeah, it's and it's cool, like you said, kind of seeing the distance there enough that they're not just, like, the same char- the same people that they used to be, but also seeing a lot of a lot of themselves in them, because, you know, you're also not a totally different person from what you were at 16 or whatever, usually. Like, not unrecognizable. Um, it, like, it's it's well done. I, I liked the choice of professions and all that sort of thing. And I just like to praise in general that, like I said, a lot of these post-series fanfics run really long. This one is fairly concise and kind of gets in and out in terms of what it's trying to do. And it's able to it's able to address a lot. Even if I kind of wanted to address some things more, it's able to address a lot in a fairly, um, fairly compact space. Yeah. No, it, and it, it makes really it, does that well, yeah. And it makes it kind of an enjoyable read in that sense, is that it, like, it kind of does go over a lot of characters in ways that are mostly satisfying. It does. Yeah, it, it it is actually, like, surprisingly satisfying. These characters that you have frustrations with in the anime actually have, like, realistic, good enough adult lives that you like them again, which is sweet. Hmm. And I guess uh, I should give you a turn. What did you want to praise? Right. Well, I, I think I, I kind of, I kind of covered... Um, most of what I wanted to praise, and, like, I do, I I also want to speak on that, though, like, that the characters are themselves, but they're grown-ups, like I said before, which, but it's still really impressive that that's done. And there's another thing that happens, which is, like, jury's perspective is paid attention to the most, and I wouldn't expect to be so empathetic towards jury's perspective, or even that the author might be, but it works somehow because her perspective is very rational it's very like let's get to the facts and it was an interesting choice but a very well done one and in general the writing is really solid i was going to speak about the writing i don't think when i read it the first time it jumped out at me a lot but as i was glancing back over this discussing it i realized i mean like like it came out when we were reading there's a lot of really good individual lines in this and I feel like, and not to say the rest of it is weak, it's like, it's kind of like solid, solid, like, you know, not, not jumping out at me or getting in my way and, you know, reading smoothly. And then just occasionally I'll be like, oh, that was very nicely phrased. Totally. Um, I wish I could think of some specific examples, but like, there are great turns of phrase. And for something that's relatively short, it's one of those styles of writing that's very unobtrusive. And yet, mm-hmm. also kind of pretty. It works for Udna, and it's hard to find something that works for Udna, so props. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I know what you mean. Something that works for Udna. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's interesting because 
I think we've talked about this a long time ago that like for a lot of series you don't find things being written in the tone of the original series in cases where that's hard to do. But Udina seems like a weird one because I feel like it seems like it should be hard to do writing that is in a similar tone to the series. And yet people do try that all the time and seem to succeed fairly often. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, maybe maybe it's mostly like comedies that people really can't hit the original tone of. It's like, I remember the Ranma fanfiction scene. It's just like hardly anyone tried to write a Ranma fanfic that read like Ranma manga or anime because it just wouldn't work. But because Uten is kind of literary, maybe you can kind of get at it a little bit better. Maybe. Make it kind of feel like Utena. Ah. Uh. All right, so I think that concludes our conversation about this. Next week, I do have a guest lined up, so it won't just be the two of us. We're going to have Rosie join us for a Doctor Who fanfic. Yay. But, and I'm counting on you and her because I don't know anything about Doctor Who. We'll help you out. Yeah. I mean, I've seen a couple episodes. I understand the existence of the Doctor. Yeah. Um, well... I'm sure there won't be anything about, like, specific characters or anything in this fanfic. Sure. I don't know. <laughs> um, there are characters, but... Ah, uh, then I might have some trouble. <laughs> Doctor Who this story is going to be... has characters and plots, just so you know, Mono. Oh, okay. I thought it was just kind of like a object that you looked at from afar and said, like, yeah, it's really cool that Doctor Who is still a thing. <laughs> that might also be correct. Kind of like Ultraman. <laughs> no one actually watches it. It's just cool that it's still going. <laughs> yeah. I hate to inform you, but that also has characters and plots. Yeah, and that's not true at all. I know Ultraman fans personally. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, our fanfic will be Disintegration by WMR. You can find a link there on whofic.com at bit.ly slash rfr who, W-H-O, not H-O-O like an owl. <laughs> that was As who. for this, yeah, Doctor Who, which, oh, is there like some fan work with Doctor Who where it's like the, you know, anthropomorphized animal characters and the Doctor's an owl? Well, you gotta find it for us. I mean... If that doesn't exist, it really should. It really should. <laughs> uh, just all the doctors as different types of owl. Oh my great. gosh, yes. I draw them all. My younger kid has a thing right now where he goes to the bathroom and talks about the baby owl that's in there. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he'll bring out the baby owl, you know, like pretend in his hands. He'll be like, I found a baby owl. Oh. One of my kiddos I work with loves owls, so I draw, drew him a baby snowy owl or something. Mm -hmm. It was very cute. It's a very cute picture. <laughs> As for this, this was episode 94 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective, 10 years after a 1999 Utina fanfic by Chris Davies. You can find a link there to the fanfiction.net posting that Chris just put up, like, yesterday from when we <laughs> recorded this, uh, because I reminded him about this fanfic and its existence. Aww. And he says he made a few changes to dialogue and word choice, but no big changes. So you may as well read the, you know, author's choice version of the fanfic. You can find a link there at bit.ly slash rfr after. 
The intro song to this podcast is The Weekly Fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from that same album. You can find those works and others by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. As for us, you can contact us at fanfic retrospective or retrofanfic at Twitter or Facebook or Reddit or Instagram. You can also contact us on retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com by email. Or you could leave comments or reviews on whatever podcast service you use to listen to our podcast. Like, I said podcast too many times in one sentence there. <laughs> um, am I missing anything? It's um, about all. You just say podcast one more time. Podcast, podcast, podcast. I'm Amato. I'm Tori. And we're just two Earth life forms trying to be nice to each other. Let's meet again in ten years and drink a fanfic. Podcast. Drink a fanfic podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm sure we will. <laughs> <laughs>